This is The Guardian. Today, Gavin Barwell, Theresa May's former chief of staff, on what a leadership crisis feels like from inside number 10. It began with Tory backbencher Sir Roger Gale. I have written to Sir Graham Brady and said that I believe that there should be a leadership contest. It takes 54 members. Well, mine may be the only letter. His was the first letter of no confidence in Boris Johnson. But throughout January, more and more MPs began to go public. Another letter is to be submitted by a Conservative MP calling for a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister. This leader has been submitted by Aaron Bell. These revelations are preventing the Prime Minister from functioning uh, in his role, and that's untenable. He has been joined tonight by former schools minister Nick Gibb, who has also handed in his letter as the numbers continue to grow. And, and yes, I know the next question you'll ask, I will be submitting my letter today to the 1922 committee. As the Partygate scandal deepened, support for the Prime Minister seemed to be ebbing away. His personal polling hit the lowest it's ever been. This week, one of the party's major donors joined calls for the PM to resign. I feel that if you lose moral authority and you do that consistently, I think you should leave. Amid the turmoil, there's been a ministerial reshuffle and an exodus of officials from Downing Street. But what's the view like from the inner circle at number 10? Gavin Barwell has been there as chief of staff to an ailing prime minister. He was by Theresa May's side through the chaos and tension of the Brexit years as her premiership was in meltdown. Who can you trust? How do you strategize your way out of disaster? The Tory party isn't sentimental. Uh, and more than probably any previous leader, he depends for his position on the perception that he is an asset when it comes to winning elections. But is it already too late? From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, what's it like inside Downing Street when everything is falling apart? Gavin Barwell, you were chief of staff to Theresa May back in 2018 when she learned that she'd be facing a vote of no confidence. Now, that process begins when Tory MPs send their letters calling for a leadership change to the chair of its backbench 1922 committee. Most of us can only guess what goes on behind the closed doors of number 10 at times like these. But you've been there. So can you describe what the mood was like on the inside? So I suppose the first thing to say is the confidence vote wasn't a surprise. It wasn't like it came out of the blue. Uh, I can remember very well the, the moment when we found out about it. We'd had a long day uh, out in Brussels. And when we landed at RAF Northart, as soon as I turned my phone back on, I got a call from number 10 saying that Graham Brady had been in touch and had got the requisite number of letters. And the Prime Minister, I think, could tell by my body language uh, that the call was bad news. And we're in a pretty gloomy mood. And when we got back into number 10, uh, a number of the most senior 
civil servants and political advisors had gathered. And I remember in particular, Robbie Gibb, who was the director of communications, completely transformed my mood, but most importantly, the prime minister's mood by sort of saying, look, we knew this was going to happen. We've got a well thought out plan for what we're going to do. Call Graham Brady now, wake him up. This was about 11.45 at night, I would guess at this point. Wake him up and tell him we want the vote tomorrow. The longer this, the longer this goes on, the more damaging it is for the country. And actually, the more time it gives your opponents to organise. We, you know, we're ready. Let's do it tomorrow. Let's get on with it. The result uh, of the ballot uh, held this evening is that the parliamentary party does have confidence. Yeah. Now, Theresa May went on to win that vote in the Commons. She had about two thirds of her MPs who ended up backing her to stay as leader. But how did it affect things in subsequent months for her? And what did it look like from up close? So I think it was a sort of progression, right? So the, the immediate, when she wins the vote, that's obviously, you know, you feel slightly euphoric. But then the next morning when she and I were talking, we still had a hundred of our MPs say that they don't have confidence in the Prime Minister. It's not a triumph, right? This has been a long and challenging day, but at the end of it, I'm pleased to have received the backing of my colleagues in tonight's ballot. Whilst I'm grateful for that support, a significant number of colleagues did cast a vote against me and I've listened to what they said. And then we had, you know, the first meaningful vote, the second meaningful vote, which we lost by big margins. So by this point, we knew we were in very significant uh, political trouble. And I, I think it would have been before the third vote, that she took the decision to announce that she would not contest the next election. And that was obviously a big blow for her because she wanted to prove to people that she could run a successful national campaign. I think one of the things as an advisor, sometimes you just have to, the most difficult conversation to have with the prime minister is to say to them, game's up, and there's nothing else we can do here. And what was the atmosphere like in number 10 at that point? In that period, it was it was a really interesting. It was probably one of my sort of happiest periods in the job because the next morning she came in and said, right, we've got two months left. What can we do in two months? We can't do anything on Brexit. I haven't been able for the last two years to do as much as I wanted on domestic policy because Brexit has sucked up so much of the, uh, the bandwidth. So what can we do in two months on all the other things that we care about? And it was sort of classic Teresa. She didn't, she wasn't sort of sitting wallowing in self-pity. She wanted to make the most of every single day that she had left in number 10. And so we drew up a short list of eight or nine things we were going to try and get done. And we worked until the very last day frantically to try and deliver as many of those things uh, as we can uh, before she left. So the atmosphere wasn't kind of mournful. Uh, It was very much, let's, let's make the most of the time that we have left here. Well, whenever leaders are deposed, we use words such as backstabbing or skullduggery. In fact, in your own book, you said that, and I quote, the behaviour of some ministers makes ferrets in sacks look well behaved. What kind of tactics did you see from the inside and were you surprised at any of them? So I think there's two different things there. I think in terms of ministers, the problem the May government had was getting she had deliberately taken a decision to appoint people right across the spectrum of conservative views on Brexit. But the result was it made it incredibly difficult for the government to adopt a position about what it wanted. And, you know, we had a culture of persistent leaking from cabinet meetings. It was, it was incredibly draining. Then I think there's a second issue, which is the language that some backbench conservative MPs used 
when briefing about her future. So I remember one quote where someone said, like, the knife is being heated and it's going to be plunged in her front, not her back. And, you know, that just made, to be honest, that made me feel like I didn't, I didn't really feel any allegiance with people that behave in that way anymore. You know, you don't, you don't want colleagues who are going to, who think that is appropriate language to use uh, in respect of political differences. So I was pretty disgusted with the with this sort of some of the anonymous briefing from some backbench MPs. The cabinet behaviour was very frustrating, but you did at least understand that the argument was a, was based on very strong principles on both sides. Boris Johnson is obviously now facing his own leadership crisis on several fronts. And there's this constant prospect of a vote of no confidence, which we'll come to. But can we talk about his role specifically in Theresa May's downfall? You wrote in your book that the conversation with Johnson was probably the worst meeting of her premiership and that he was so rude that you came close to interrupting and asking him to leave. What was your personal view of Johnson at that time? I had been really close to him when he was mayor of London. I was a London MP. He was incredibly helpful to me and supportive of me campaigning in a marginal seat. So I had a high regard for him and I considered him a friend. And then when I found myself in this new job as chief of staff to the prime minister, and he was her foreign secretary, it immediately was clear it was going to be a much more difficult relationship because he was the hardest over of anyone in the cabinet. You know, there were people who'd supported leaving the European all their lives who were more inclined to compromise a bit to get a deal than he was. So it was a very difficult relationship. And the quote that you just gave was was a particular meeting that took place while he was still foreign secretary. Uh, and I did my best to try and manage that relationship, but it, you know, it, it never was in a very good place. Well, it's now Boris Johnson who is looking around the cabinet table, looking at who his allies are and who might be plotting against him. Does it look like to you that Number 10 are finding it difficult to get senior ministers out on the airwaves to defend him? It's difficult to judge from the outside, but it feels like that on occasions. I mean, I remember there was a day when clearly they all they, they tried to get all of the cabinet to tweet their support. And there was quite a time lag before everyone had done so. And some people did very effusive tweets and others just sort of retweeted someone else or or said something fairly minimalist. So it, it feels to me looking in on it that a number of ministers are deeply uncomfortable with the lines that they are being told that they need to trot out and and reluctant to do that. And clearly, Theresa May's troubles stem from a Brexit policy conundrum and having no majority in Parliament. Boris Johnson's leadership crisis is down to the scandals within Downing Street itself. Gavin, can I ask you, do you recognise the picture painted of the drinking culture in Number 10 from when you were there just over three years ago? No, not at all. So it's certainly true, like in any office on a Friday evening, people might have a glass of wine with each other at the end of the day, at the end of the long working week. But the kind of culture that she describes in the report, I don't recognise at all, no. Now, whether it was with Theresa May or maybe most famously with Margaret Thatcher, there does seem to be a reputation in the Conservative Party of being particularly ruthless when it comes to getting rid of a leader who is seen as failing. What happened in this room took on mythical proportions in Tory folklore because Margaret Thatcher and her closest supporters decided she'd been the victim of a conspiracy. It was treachery with a smile on its face. 
accurate do you think that is? And what sorts of negotiations do you think are happening right now? So I think it's it's definitely accurate historically. The Conservative Party's success, I think, owes a lot to the fact that it is more ruthless than Labour is with its with its leaders. There's no way the Conservative Party would have allowed a leader with the polling of Jeremy Corbyn to fight a general election. And that's an important quality in the party's uh, success. In terms of what's happening at the moment, I suspect, I'm not in a position to know, but I suspect the people that want the prime minister gone are trying to think about when is the right time to trigger that ballot. Because one of the other things the rules say is that if you win a vote of no confidence as a leader, another one can't be triggered for 12 months. So the people that want the prime minister to go won't want to trigger a ballot until they're confident that they would win that ballot. And it's really difficult for them because they don't know how many letters have been submitted. They may well be MPs who have not told anyone but have privately submitted a letter. So you've always got the risk that actually a vote could be triggered without anyone uh, planning for that to happen. We heard over the weekend that there is a suggestion that some Johnson loyalists may have submitted letters to Graham Brady in order to infiltrate the process and possibly get advance warning of when the threshold is reached. Now, that may or may not be true, but does Number 10 have any reliable way of finding out who has handed in their letters or does Johnson know just as much as the rest of us do? So does Number 10 have any way of knowing how many letters? No, only Graham Brady knows. And in my experience, he is very fastidious about not sharing that information with anyone. Then you suggested that what they might do is get some loyalists to submit letters in order to trigger a ballot. Now, let's unpick that. Doing that would not give them any intel on the numbers of letters. If, if, I, was, if I were a Johnson loyalist and I went and submitted a letter, Graham doesn't tell me you're the 39th letter. So it wouldn't give them any intelligence. But it is possible that that might be a tactic for the reasons that I was just discussing, that if the Prime Minister's team think that he would win a vote tomorrow, they may judge better to have it now, end this constant uncertainty and give yourself protection for 12 months than to wait until the police have finished their investigation or the local elections and maybe then you're in a more difficult position to win the vote. So certainly when we were in this situation, I can remember a discussion where somebody suggested to the Prime Minister maybe the right thing to do is to get some of our loyalists to put letters in so that we have the vote and have it now because we would win right now. Under the rules set out in the Constitution of the Conservative Party, no further confidence vote can take place for at least two years. The level of strategy and bluff is like political Jenga. I mean, would you be suggesting to Johnson right now that his loyalists should submit their letters to trigger a vote? I think it's a risky <laughs> it's a risky thing for a prime minister to do because you don't know how that vote the vote is a secret ballot. There's no guarantee that all of your ministers are going to privately support you in that vote even if they're publicly saying that they are supporting you. So they'd be taking a big risk to take that step. And that's what I said when somebody gave that advice to Theresa. Gavin, you've worked with Boris Johnson and I assume you know him quite well. How do you think he'll be handling this sort of steady drip of Tory MPs handing their letters? Do you think he'll be taking it personally? Yeah, look, I think anyone would take it personally. I haven't spoken to him recently, so I can't tell you this is what he's thinking right now. But from what I read in the papers, he clearly feels that he hasn't done anything wrong and he's been let down by people around him. And I'm sh- I suspect, therefore, that he'll also be thinking, look, 
you know, I won this huge victory two years ago, first time the Conservatives have won a big majority since Margaret Thatcher's day. And what are these people all doing, turning on me, you know, when I won so big? And so I suspect there's bound to be uh, a sense of that. And that's part of his political problem at the moment, it strikes me, that he, you know, every now and then he goes to the House and gives an apology, but it doesn't really feel like he is really sorry, that he's sort of going through the motions because someone's told him he needs to apologise, but he doesn't he doesn't feel that he's really messed up. So I'm sure there's... Does that, I'm does sure that smack of arrogance to you? I mean, what do you make of that? Well, look, from, from my perspective, looking in on it from the outside, you know, I can't understand why he doesn't see that he's done something wrong. But the, the press reports I read suggest that, you know, he felt that the people he was working with were part of his bubble. That's how he saw it at the time. So... It's always a difficult thing when you're in number 10. You, you know, you can you can get into this bubble where you see the world differently from how everybody outside looking in sees it. And that's very dangerous for any politician. So we know that Johnson has been on a charm offensive and he's calling in wavering MPs and he's trying to reassure them. What do you think the Prime Minister can do in these circumstances to try and change the political momentum? So body language, I think, is important. You know, I think the Prime Minister's low point was that interview he did with Beth Rigby, where he kind of looked, he looked slightly broken. That is just ludicrous, isn't it? You are just taking the mickey out of the British people by no, suggesting I, well, I, 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 You know how silly that sounds, don't you? I think what people need to do is wait and see what the... The report says. Uh, and then he came out the next day at PMQs and he was much more punchy at least. So that helps a bit. I think if MPs think you've still got some fight in you, that helps. Uh, then the key thing is to stop, in his case, in the current situation, is to stop making the mistakes. You know, just over a week ago when, when he came and gave the statement once Sue Gray had issued her update, that was meant to be the moment for him to issue a contrite apology and draw a line under this story. And instead, he smears Keir Starmer and makes the situation even worse. A former director of public prosecutions, Mr. Speaker, he spent most of his time prosecuting journalists and failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile, as far as I can make out, Mr. Speaker. So, like, what rule 1.0, stop digging yourself deeper into the hole. With some MPs, sometimes there's, you know, you can try and find out if there are other issues that they're unhappy with and things the Prime Minister's got a degree of patronage. Maybe there's things you can do to help that will win people over. Um, and just the process of engaging people and talking to them can, can help if you've got a compelling story to tell about what your plan is to get out of the hole that the MPs feel that you're in at the moment. So, you know, one of the dangers always with being prime minister is you spend all your time in number 10 with your civil servants and political advisors, and you don't spend enough time with your colleagues and they begin to feel you're not listening to them, uh, spend too much time listening to the civil service. So these are the kind of things that you can employ. But ultimately, in the Prime Minister's current situation, you were referring earlier to the Conservative Party being ruthless. If his personal polling doesn't improve, sooner or later, they're going to get rid of him. Well, the other thing we've seen in the past few days is this huge exodus of number 10 staff. Key aides have quit on him, including Manira Mirza, one of his longest serving closest allies. How damaging is that for him? Well, I think I would draw a distinction between Manira and the other three people that left. And her letter of resignation was incredibly powerful. And she basically said to him, I can't continue working with you 
given that you refused to retract the, the remarks you made about Keir Starmer. And they told us something really interesting, and I, I think something that the media often overlook, overlook in this story, which is if you, if you think of the last few months and Owen Paterson affair, wallpaper gate, party gate, people doing your job or people like me commenting on it, looking in from the outside, we don't know if the problem is that the prime minister hasn't got advisors who will tell him uncomfortable truths or if he has been getting good advice and he's just been ignoring it. And what the Manira Mirza letter told us was that at least in relation to this smear of Keir Starmer, he was told not to do it and he still went ahead and did it. And therefore you can change all the advisors in the world, but if the prime minister himself doesn't change, then you're not going to solve the problem. Well, Johnson's also conducted a mini reshuffle of his ministers this week. The white smoke goes up on reshuffle day. It's another part of the reboot. There are also reports that he plans a bigger shake-up of the cabinet in the summer, assuming he is still prime minister by then. Do you think that's an effective way of changing the narrative about your leadership? I think reshuffles can help a bit if you manage to get round pegs in round holes. Uh, but I think you would struggle if you look back in political history to find reshuffles that fundamentally change the government. So, yes, you know, of course, it's right trying to get your personnel deployed in the right way, but it's not going to fundamentally change anything. Coming up, who is backing Boris Johnson and who is on manoeuvres to replace him? As things stand right now, Johnson appears to be seriously weakened, but we're now in this period where MPs seem to be waiting for the outcome of a police investigation into rule-breaking in Number 10. Parliament takes a break next week, so Westminster will go quiet for a few days. What would you be advising him to do right now? So I think there's a limited amount uh, that, that he can do. The best thing is as much as possible to, to try and move the media agenda on in terms of the policy agenda. You know, we've obviously had the levelling up white paper, uh, the package Ricky, Rishi Sunak announced to try and help people with the cost of living. So the more the government can try and get on with business as usual and move the agenda on, that, that helps a bit. But I think if you look ahead, there are three, maybe four potential hurdles that he's got to get over. The first one you've already mentioned which is the police investigation. So you know, if the police either charge him or he accepts a fixed penalty notice, that might be a moment where MPs decide to take action. Then you've got the Sue Gray report. Uh, and when we see the full version of that, if there's proof there that he was warned about this uh, party on the 20th of May, that it might be a breach of the rules, that would mean that he had misled Parliament. So that could be another tipping point. Then you've got the local elections in May. And then finally, we may well get other leaks. You know, there's clearly been an orchestrated campaign against him with people dripping stuff out slowly but surely. There may be more. Uh, and, and so if they're thinking about how do we get through this next few months, those are the moments that, that would worry me if I was doing my old job. Boris Johnson has reportedly said recently that you'd need a tank division to drag him out of Downing Street and that he's going nowhere. But... Once those letters from MPs go in and that confidence vote takes place, is the end then inevitable? No, I think it, it depends on the result of the confidence vote. So, so let me give you three scenarios. Let's say that he won at 
I think in that situation, the 20% have to accept they're in a clear minority in the parliamentary party and he can continue. Then you've got an in-between world. Uh, so something similar to what, what Theresa achieved, where I would say you've got an opportunity to move on, but it's called sort of conditional. You're on notice that if you can't change the fundamentals that have upset maybe a third of your colleagues, that you could be in trouble medium term. And then if, it's, if he wins, but very narrowly, let's say he won 55-45, I think it's very difficult then. So I'm sure he would try to carry on in that circumstance. But if nearly half of your MPs have declared they don't have confidence in you, it's incredibly difficult for a prime minister to restore their authority in that position. So if we do get a vote, what happens next, I think, depends on the, uh, not, just, not just whether he wins or not, but the margin involved. Gavin, you're not an MP anymore. You sit in the Lords. You wouldn't have a say in any vote on his leadership that could be coming. But how much confidence do you have in Boris Johnson? How much do you believe in him? Well, I have, I have very mixed views of him. Uh, obviously, a lot of the media narrative at the moment is people either think he's wonderful and should stay or they think he's a complete disaster. And the truth, I think, lies somewhere in between. Uh, although I would say he's partly responsible for the hole the Conservative Party was in in the spring of 2019. Nonetheless, it was in a very deep hole. And he got us out of that hole and, and won the election and defeated Jeremy Corbyn. And so you've got to give him some credit for that. And I think on the environment or levelling up, uh, I, I have a very strong agreement with what he's trying to do on those issues. But on the other side of the coin, uh, you know, I think he's been proved wrong on Brexit. And then I think if you think, if you look at sort of the whole Partygate scandal that we're talking about now, that speaks to his style of government, and the way in which he's been running the government machine. You know, we've, I think we're on our third iteration of number 10 under him now. Uh, and it's not been a success story at all. But I find it very difficult to defend the way in which he uh, and the team at Downing Street behaved uh, during the pandemic. Now, I can remember what it was like in April and May of 2020. I wasn't able to go and see my mum, who lives on her own. And I think many people around the country just find it unacceptable that the people who made the rules behaved in that way. And then as a Conservative, I don't expect all your listeners to care about this so much, but as a Conservative who wants the Conservative Party to do well at the next election, I am very sceptical that he can recover his personal standing with the electorate from where it is at the moment. He's about, his approval ratings at the moment are about the level that Jeremy Corbyn's were at before the last election, which is not a high bar, to put it mildly. So I think if you try and look at the picture overall, there are some real achievements he can point to, but there are also some real flaws with the way in which he's gone about things. Gavin, you know the Conservative Party pretty well. Do you think it's made up its mind on Boris Johnson? And what would your prediction be for the weeks or months ahead? I don't think it has made up its mind yet. If it had, we would have had a confidence vote by now. now it's a big decision for a political party to ditch its leader. And whilst I think probably a lot of people listening to this will think, well, there's already enough evidence that he should go. I think if you're in the shoes of a Conservative MP, you can understand why they don't wish to rush to that decision. So it feels to me at the moment that those are the two key things that MPs are looking at. What do the police have to say? And what do the public have to say at the ballot box in the local elections? 
And what do you think those around him, how do you think that they'll be making manoeuvres? Anyone who has an eye on their eye on the leadership bid in, if a contest came to be? So it's difficult uh, for those for those people because the one group that still significant numbers are behind the Prime Minister is Conservative Party members. So they, I think, or at least a chunk of them, will be unforgiving of people who are seen not to be loyal to him. So there may well be people who've concluded that a change is likely to happen and that they wish to be a candidate in that situation, but they've got to be quite careful about how they conduct themselves right now. And that's one of the difficult things of politics. I suspect most of the people listening to this will think, well, you, you know, you should decide what you think is right and wrong, and you should you should make the decision on principle about whether you're prepared to serve in the government. But politics is a sort of team game, and ultimately uh, people that are thinking about what comes next have got to have got to think through how the dynamics of any confidence vote and subsequent leadership contest are going to work. What's your gut feeling about where all this is heading? I think that the most likely scenario is that he's still there in a month's time, but I think it's unlikely that he'll still be there in a year's time. And I think the most likely scenario is that Rishi Sunak would would take over. Gavin, thank you so much. My pleasure. That was Gavin Barwell. My thanks to him. To find out more what's happening in Westminster, do follow the reporting from our politics team at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Mythley Rao. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.